0: Hello, I'm Mel. And I'm Steph. And this is East Asia for All, a podcast about the East Asian pop culture and media that you love. We're both working on our PhDs
1: in Chinese history, but we also study and teach about East Asia in general. If you're listening right now,
0: you, like us, probably also have an addiction to East Asian pop culture and media. Between the two of us, we've lived on and off in China, Taiwan, and Japan since 2007. So, we're taking our love for East Asia, our experiences there, and the knowledge we've gained in the Ivory Tower and making it available beyond our classroom walls. This episode of East Asia for All is about Under the Dome, a documentary by reporter Chai Jing that came out in 2015. The film is 104 minutes long and it covers China's current pollution problems. However, The film does more than give its viewers an excellent overview of the environmental crisis in China. Because the film was censored within China less than a week after it debuted, it also allows us to discuss internet censorship within the People's Republic of China. If you haven't seen Under the Dome yet, you can watch it on YouTube with English subtitles. We both really admire the film, and we hope that you will too.
1: So our podcast today is about the Chinese environmental documentary Under the Dome, and it's a 2015 film by reporter Chai Jing. It went viral and it was quickly
0: banned on the Chinese internet. Now, we should probably note before we get too much further that some of you may have started listening to this podcast because you love science fiction or Stephen King or both because this podcast is about Under the Dome. But this is not that Under the Dome. This is not the Stephen King book that we're talking about. It is not the TV series based on that. We do hope you'll keep listening if that's why you've come here. And what might keep you here is that she actually chose the English and Chinese name Under the Dome as a direct reference to that Stephen King series because that series is a portrayal of a community trapped by an invisible force that covers the area. And she felt like that that was a really good metaphor for what is going on in China right now. Right. Steph, you recently returned from a trip to Tianjin, a city in northern China. And so what was that like?
1: Yeah, so I was in Tianjin, which is right outside of Beijing in the north for research. I woke up to this little message on my cell phone from this Chinese navigation app that a lot of folks in China use called Baidu Ditu. And it was basically warning me about the pollution levels. And I was really surprised. I had never seen anything like that before from the app. And it had some common suggestions for dealing with pollution, if you're familiar. So stay inside, wear a face mask, and avoid any intense exercise. And I've got to say, I'm particularly really sensitive to air pollution. On this trip alone, I got sick on the
0: second day of being in Tianjin. Wow. Do you remember what the PMI ratings were, like the particulate matter Like what, what, how bad was it when you were there? You know, I don't remember off the top of my head, but I do
1: remember thinking that, (laughs) this is kind of funny, it wasn't that bad because I had been kind of used to seeing levels around like 200 or so when we previously lived in Tianjin because we actually lived there together earlier last year in 2015. So I was kind of surprised that I got this message. It didn't seem that bad to me but obviously the app the developers of the app thought otherwise.
0: <laughs> it is really interesting because from everything that we hear and see and also just my own experience the pollution is always worse during the winter when everybody is trying to heat their homes. But when we lived in Tianjin last year we lived there during the spring and the summer and a lot of days it wasn't that bad. But I mean, it got above 300. I think it hit 500 briefly, but still. So for those of you who aren't familiar, then we keep talking about these rating systems. So these numbers that we're talking about above 200, above 300, this is a measurement of how many PM 2.5 are in the air. And PM 2.5 are these tiny particles of pollution that are in the air, and they're far smaller than the eye can see, and they're extremely dangerous because they can move through your body's various materials and organs and things. And so in the US, I think the limit for what is a safe amount of these PM 2.5 in the air is 25, and in Europe, I think it's 50, and in China, it's 75. And so when we're talking about ratings that are above 200, 300, I mean, five, 500 is terrible, but I think over a thousand has been recorded in parts of China.
1: Definitely. And in the documentary Under the Dome, you know, Chai Jing talks about that. I think she talks about Harbin being over a thousand, um, having PM 2.5 readings over a thousand at one
0: point. So this is terrible. And we have been pretty fortunate that it hasn't been that bad when we've lived there um, because we've also lived in Shanghai and I've previously lived in a few different cities in Southern China. And in general, in the South of China, the pollution is not quite so bad, but it's still pretty polluted. And I remember when I first studied abroad in Xiamen, it's in Fujian province in Southern China, I had a really similar experience to what reporter Chai Jing from the documentary describes, which is that when I was living in Xiamen, I kept thinking, and this was 2007, I kept thinking that Xiamen was just very foggy and it's on the coast and it's a beautiful beach city. And I just remember thinking this is such unfortunate timing because I just came when it just happened to be really foggy almost every day. And it took me probably two or three months to realize that it was not fog, but rather it was pollution and smog.
1: Yeah. So maybe we should talk a little bit about who who is? Yes. So like we said, she's a reporter. She originally, though, is from Linfen in Shanxi province. And this is a really, for those of you that aren't familiar, a really industrial province. It's also in North China a little, but it's more interior than Tianjin, for example.
0: And Chai Jing is a longtime reporter and she has worked for CCTV. In 2001, she joined the CCTV network, which is the China Central Television Network, as a reporter and a presenter.
1: Right. And what I think is really interesting about Under the Dome, actually, though, is that, you know, the documentary is self-financed by Chai Jing, but it seems that she maybe had support from Chinese state
0: television producers. And how much did the film cost? Do you remember?
1: It cost about one million renminbi, which is about 159,000 USD. Okay.
0: So it looks like from sources that we've seen, there is speculation that even though the documentary was shot and financed independently, she had support from CCTV producers, correct?
1: Right. And you can definitely see that, you know, from the people that she's interviewing in it as well, right? She interviews people within the Chinese government, you know, environmental
0: agencies, Ministry of Environmental Protection. And that also means that her point of view in making this documentary is that she is a reformist. She is definitely operating within the parameters of the Chinese government's authority. It's pretty clear. And a lot of the articles that we've been reading about this, say in the BBC, have definitely noted that she must have gotten some sort of governmental approval for the documentary before its release Um, and probably she worked very closely with the Ministry of Environmental Protection.
1: Right. And, you know, besides that kind of reformist view, in Chai Jing's work, right, we can see a pretty clear strain of nationalism and patriotism. In 2009, at the Beijing Journalist Association, she said that, quote, a country is built upon individuals. She is constructed and determined by them, end quote. So
0: she is definitely not what you might think of as, say, like a dissident. She is not protesting and thinking that we need or that China needs a new governmental structure or ruling party or, Anything so radical as that, but rather she has been, and for a long time on many different projects, she reported on the SARS epidemic and the Sichuan earthquake and so many other things. She has always been working within the governmental structure and that point of view carries forward into this documentary as well. Right. Okay. Okay. So
1: maybe we should talk a little bit about the style of the film, especially for those of you that maybe haven't seen it yet. So it would be very familiar to people in the U.S. for its TED Talk kind of style with Chai Jing in the front with a microphone standing
0: in front of a large screen, lots of graphs, talking to an audience. Who's portrayed. You get to see their reactions to everything, which are usually horrified. (laughs) Totally. For most of it. And I think for a lot of Americans, particularly, it calls to mind Al Gore. An inconvenient truth, right? And
1: film scholars like Su Chin Tui have called it a dynamic media event because of that style. You have audience interaction, and it was also wildly successful and wouldn't have been that successful without dissemination by internet viewers and then later English subtitles and it being placed on YouTube by two Chinese teenagers that outsourced that um, or crowdsourced that translation.
0: Right, which is such a neat story that I guess these two Chinese teenagers crowdsourced English subtitles and then managed to upload it to YouTube, which by the way is banned in China so that they could get the word out. So Under the Dome probably had implicit, not probably, it had Support from people within the government and also within CCTV. And it was released in late February 2015, right before the National People's Congress was going to meet. Right. And in general, the
1: major themes of the film were air pollution in China, in general, industrialization versus human lives, bureaucratic stymieing, criticism of state owned enterprise, environment versus profit, and a classed analysis of all of those things.
0: Yeah. Yuen Ren, in an article from The Guardian, notes that in particular, she talks about the ways that being in different classes really determines the quality of air that people have access to. So middle class and rich folks are likely to be able to afford good air filters for their homes and also the Air filter masks that can protect you when you're outside your home, and they're also, as Chai Jing points out, not likely to be truck drivers or to have coal stoves for heating and cooking in their homes. And so, as Yuanren says, uh, quote, "It's certainly unaffordable for the villagers living next to the polluting coal plants to fork out for a commercial air purifier or even a N96." which is uh, the, a high rating of like a mask that cost a pound a go. It's an English pound. So amid the momentum for change, the poorest may just be left behind, end quote.
1: So the film, as Mel said, was released in late February 2015, and it was viewed more than 150 million times within three days of that release date.
0: Three days. Yeah. That's half of the population of the U.S. watching something, which would never happen (laughs) now. Yeah, pretty impressive, honestly. Now, so it's released February 28th, and then March 2nd, less than a week later, censors ordered the media to stop publishing articles about the film, and soon after that, it was completely pulled, like totally censored and blocked within China.
1: Right, and this might be... The expected response, but there actually there there were some criticisms, of course, uh, and but there were also some accolades. So one criticism
0: that, uh, or one critic that, and you mean non governmental critics? So the government obviously didn't like it because right it got so popular so fast. I think that they did not anticipate how popular it would be. That's at least my educated guess as to why they promoted it then pulled it. Certainly. But then also people just sort of average Chinese citizens had some, I think, pretty valid criticisms, correct? Right. So
1: artist Ai Weiwei, who U.S. listeners might be familiar with or people globally are familiar with, had some interesting words to say about Chai Jing's documentary. Doesn't he always? (laughs) So he's quoted as saying, quote, her daughter's tumor may not be associated with smog, but the brain damaged mother finds clear scientific data supports. And also later went on to say, quote, those who comprehend the notion of smog only through Chai's womb must be brain damaged, too. Ooh, right.
0: <laughs> He's using, it seems to really not like her using her status as a mother to talk about this.
1: And that's one thing that you see throughout under the dome is the constant visibility of mothers, the connection between mother and child, this narration, this maternal voice that comes out. It's an, in- it's an interesting choice. It's a choice for Chai Jing because of her personal life, which is something that we haven't talked about. She blames her child's tumor, on the pollution in China. Right. So her, I think, only child? Yes, her daughter. Her only, yeah, her her daughter was born with a tumor. Right. And immediately had to undergo surgery, which she covers in, in the documentary.
0: So it makes sense. And I think it's really emotionally appealing. But I can see why the idea that one could only care about this from the viewpoint of a mother would be frustrating for some. Right. And then, of course, there have been other critical comments because Chai and her husband were apparently well off enough for her to have traveled to the U.S. to give birth to her daughter. And so even though she is obviously very concerned that her daughter has been affected by the pollution, even while she was in the womb living in China, and then she's, of course, worried about her daughter growing up in China in a very polluted environment, she also left China to give birth to her daughter. Right, she was very heavily criticized for this move. But
1: there were also a lot of positive comments, sometimes from surprising places about the documentary. Uh, One such person to compliment was Chen Jining. And who's that? He is the new Minister of Environmental Protection, and he compared her work to
0: Rachel Carson's Silent Spring. Oh, UCSC has a new college named after Rachel Carson. What a coincidence. It does. I forgot about that. Yeah. So Rachel Carson's Silent Spring was a book that really galvanized the U.S. environmental movement. So I can definitely see why people are making this comparison. So The film was removed, as we said, about a week after it debuted. And so this brings up a lot of the issues of censorship that I think we often hear about. And then also as people who sometimes live in China grapple with while we're there. So maybe we should talk a little bit about what the Chinese social media environment is like.
1: So if you live in China... Your most crucial piece of social media really is WeChat. It not only is the way that you kind of navigate yourself financially in China from things like getting a taxi to getting food delivered and those kinds of things, but uh, it's also where you post and see all of your friends Yes, like their social media feed, kind of like Facebook. Yeah, so it's a really, it's a crucial part of social media life in China. Um, Messaging and also like a news social feed.
0: So this is Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, everything, all in one. Uber, your bank account, (laughs) everything. I almost lost my mind when I lost my WeChat WeChat password once. (laughs) You have to have WeChat. (laughs) And also, of course, these websites that we're comparing it to like Facebook, Twitter, they are all blocked in China. Right. So when something is really becoming Viral and being spread widely on WeChat, that is reaching a really wide audience of people. And then, of course, it got pulled because WeChat, like almost all other Chinese sources of information, are monitored really closely by censors within China. And so I think we should talk a little bit about censorship in China because it is both, in some ways, pretty similar to what people from the outside think it is. And then, in other important ways, it's not. And I think it can be really surprising the things that can and can't be said. There was an article by Peter Hessler called Travels With My Censor, and it was about a trip that he did in China where he was with his editor slash censor who was helping translate some of his works into Chinese. And he was talking about how a lot of the censorship that is done is, in his words, defensive. Quote, rather than promoting an agenda or covering up some specific truth, he tries to avoid catching the eye of a higher authority. End quote. And he's talking here about his censor. And so I think we have to think about the ways that Chai Jing was interacting with the system, much like, say, Peter Hessler's censor or anyone else and how she, I think, tried really hard to navigate that, but then... It was inevitably unsuccessful.
1: Right. It seemed in some ways a really skillful navigation of those politics. I think my favorite quote from that article, Travels With My Censor, was the way that Hessler described this form of censorship as, quote, a strangely unenthusiastic form of censorship and this idea of kind of sliding just under the radar
0: It seems like Chai Jing, I mean, she was a CCTV reporter. She worked for the state-backed news for a long time. She was obviously very familiar with the frameworks of what can be discussed without issues within China. And she worked really hard to make sure that her documentary would, I think, be acceptable. The only things that really can be said is perhaps she was a victim of her documentaries or the documentary was a victim of its own popularity. It was so successful and popular that could not fly under the radar anymore. And also perhaps she just wasn't used to not having the state backing of being a CCTV reporter.
1: Right. It's so hard to say if she anticipated it being blocked or not, if she really thought that that was a possibility or, like you said, her position kind of blinded her to what seems like an obvious move, considering the content, really, for the Chinese government to to completely block it on or ban it on the Chinese Internet.
0: And the solutions that she talks about, I mean, I think that they're really important and perhaps were a bit too much, but they're, I think, pretty
1: mild Right. It's largely the, her solutions are largely focused on reforming the system. So individuals and companies need to hold the government accountable, force government regulation and kind of get the government to change these larger systems. It's very reformist working within the system for change.
0: Right. And there is also some solutions that she proposes where she encourages individuals to report companies, truck drivers, etc. that are obviously polluting, but it's very much individual actions, not at all organizing for like a mass political change. And interestingly enough, not a lot about Personal care. Right. So, no
1: instructions or pressures to, you know, put on a face mask. I don't know if she thinks that that's a given, given that, you know, maybe people in Beijing, for example, are used to wearing face masks. But I've got to say, walking around Tianjin, which is really close to Beijing, not a lot of locals
0: in face masks taking personal precautions for their health. Yeah, definitely. So, the air pollution is not the only environmental concern in China. She was covering the air pollution because I think it is the most visible problem and could perhaps be the most pressing concern right now in China, but it's definitely not the only one. Right. Actually, in April of last year, 2016,
1: there was an article in New York Times about the groundwater crisis that is, we're really only starting to understand right now in China From this article by Chris Buckley and uh, Vanessa Piao, quote, more than 80% of the water from underground wells used by farms, factories, and households across the heavily populated plains of China is unfit for drinking or bathing because of contamination from industry and farming. You know, we tend to focus a lot on the air. We can see it sometimes, right? Sometimes it's really visible when it's really bad. But the groundwater, apparently
0: too. 80%. Yeah. And that's not including cities, though, correct? Correct. That is rural. Still terrible. Right. Now, unsurprisingly, there have been an increasing number of environmental protection protests over the last few years. The Chinese people are obviously very well aware of what is going on, and they are not very happy. And so these protests, at least the ones that we are able to read about uh, because they are not reported on, or at least I should say, the media often has an incentive not to report. Right. But as far as we can tell, the protests are generally over the construction of new factories. So, for example, in an article in Take Part by Jennifer Duggan, there were protests in the summer of 2015 in a suburb of Shanghai called Jinshan over the construction of a new chemical plant. And according to Duggan, the protests continued for more than a week and thousands took to the streets. So this was a really major protest. And this is only one of many right now in China. Right. And, and it's not just protests, too. There are also
1: lawsuits that are happening. So just this last year, at the end of last year, at the end of December, there was a group of Chinese lawyers that filed to sue the local Beijing Tianjin Hebei city governments for their failures in fighting the air pollution and smog in this area. So that is about a month ago. Yeah, yeah, really recent.
0: And I think something that we need to think about and acknowledge when we're talking about the terrible pollution problem in China is that the responsibility for this lies on many different actors' shoulders, And I think we need to think about as, I mean, we are both Americans, so we need to think about as Americans how in some ways the pollution crisis in China is because we have exported the production of so many goods to China. And so we rely on these cheap goods, or not necessarily cheap, but like our computers and electronics, they're all made often using really terribly dirty processes in China. And so We are benefiting from the really terribly regulated systems of mining, construction, production, all of these sorts of things
1: right. so our our consumerism is kind of it it is definitely contributing to those environmental issues. And pollution in general, too, as Chai Jing also points out in the documentary, is not not just limited to China. She talks about air smog problems in places like Iran and in India. But the rest of the world is also really increasingly worried. And I feel like this last, you know, the end of twenty sixteen, which is constantly about, environmental issues, air problems, concerns, you know, and uh, of course, you have cities that have been dealing that with that for a long time, like, for example, Mexico City, which has had, you know, no drive days uh, based on license plate numbers since 1989. But then, you know, last year, in Paris with the introduction of free days for public transportation to encourage people not to drive and also, you know, required stickers on your car based on their pollutions and emissions ratings. So this is something that the whole world is thinking about, both the way that production influences pollution and then also things like transportation.
0: We are not immune. And in California, where we live, I mean, when you were in Sacramento recently, how high was the pollution? I was shocked.
1: You know, I came back to Sacramento and I had always known that with a kind of flat geography like Sacramento has that it can be prone to air smog. But, you know, it was almost 100 PM 2.5 some days and you could see it. Which is unhealthy. It is unhealthy, yeah. And especially for people like me, right, that are sensitive to it. You can tell, you can tell physically and it does affect your health. And I don't think that people for example, in Sacramento, are thinking about that, even though that is a reality. It seems as though they might, I'm guessing, might be aware of pollution problems in China, but not necessarily in their backyard, right? Mm -hmm.
0: So let's switch gears, or no, that's the wrong metaphor. Let's switch hats and put on our historian's hat. We are both historians by trade, and so we cannot help... But think about this from a historian's perspective. So for you, Steph, what sort of historical ideas, trends, people, etc. did this bring to mind?
1: Well, for me, I mean, just thinking directly about the Under the Dome documentary, I thought some of the examples that she brought up historically, thinking about this pollution over a long period were really interesting. So talking about pollution in the 70s and 80s, Uh, in China, like the connection between lung cancer and the burning of coal or kerosene within the home, right? Whether And that this information was not open to the public for a very long time.
0: Yeah, and so this is actually, I mean, I think a lot of the times when China's pollution crisis is talked about, is talked about from the perspective of oh, well, China is developing and industrializing and it needs to catch up and this is only a problem since the, I don't know, early to mid 80s, and we'll fix it soon. But when you actually look at it, there have been pollution problems, and maybe not problems on the same large scale, but as like huge factories that are just churning out so much pollution, but rather within people's homes. Right, exactly.
1: And I think the thing that's really difficult about this framework that you just brought up, Mel, about China still being a developing country and I don't know whether or not that gives us a right um, to hold them accountable for this kind of these kind of polluting practices is because the coal industry does support so many people's lives, not just in China, but around the world. Right. And, you know, we know historically that even though Under the Dome kind of portrayed the,
0: you know, green industry and kind of green. Or even not what we would consider super green industry, like wind right right energy, but even just. Natural gas. natural gas,
1: right? Just like oil and natural anything gas. anything
0: but coal. Right. I think anything is the name but of the game, right?
1: So, but that's not a benign process. Like switch, like shutting down coal factories and, or I'm sorry, coal mines. Shutting down coal mines, uh, smokestacks, everything. Sort of coal thing. factories. Yeah, right? it's not a benign process that hurts people. That is. Their livelihood, and we can see those historical processes, especially how how painful and difficult those are in places like the UK and the US, and even in the most recent election, you know, coal played a really big part. With you know the Trump campaign kind of promising to bring back the coal industry in coal mining regions in America, um, with no real discussion of what the ramifications of that might be, simply playing on the emotions and the needs of people that are supported by that industry.
0: Yeah, I mean it's true. Clean air and clean water and healthy food are really important, but so are jobs and having a livelihood. And that is one thing I think that Under
1: the Dome highlights really well is that tension. And in, in you know in China in particular, I think it is very visible and easier to track, maybe. But obviously, we can see that that's all that's still a conversation that's happening in the United States in a lot of places. So it's a very complex conversation. It's not as easy as just shifting to another
0: form of energy. So that was wonderful. Do you want to know what I thought when I put on my historian's hat? I do. What is it, Ma? So we were reading Chai Jing's uh, autobiography, and she talks about why she wanted to do journalism, why she wanted to get involved in the news, and her response was that she wanted to talk about the people. She wanted to bring out the people within the news. It was all about the people. And I do a lot of research on Mao era China. And I could not help but think that this is sort of the modern day equivalent of like, which means to serve the people. And this is such a ubiquitous slogan during the Maoist era, everything you do should be for the people, you were always thinking about serving the people. And so I really like that the way that she decided to get into journalism was basically just for the people. And it was this Maoist slogan. But if you say those exact words now, serve the people, you sound like a (laughs) (laughs) fuddy-duddy. But I mean, she put it in these updated terms, but this is still the idea of serving the people, serving the masses is still obviously very compelling.
1: Right. It's a really powerful motivation. And right, exactly. People obviously still find it compelling, even
0: phrased a different way. You don't want to sound like you're An old communist comrade anymore. Or do you? (laughs) (laughs) If you like this documentary and you are wondering what else you can watch that would be like it, we have some recommendations for you.
1: There are two documentaries here by Wang Zhou Liang that we want to recommend for you the first is beijing besieged by waste and it is about the ring of landfills waste landfills that surround uh, the capital beijing this is a documentary from 2011 and the second Did you say that one was called Beijing Besieged by Waste? That's right.
0: Okay. Oh, such a good title.
1: (laughs) And his most recent work is actually called Plastic China. And it's pretty short. It's about half an hour long. And unlike Beijing Besieged by Waste, has some pretty much more in-depth interviews with people that are sifting through the plastic waste, not just of China, but of the world for a living. And it's tough to watch, but it's really really important. Good recommendations. The other recommendation that I had, I don't know. So I haven't done this yet. It's been recommended to me. I really want to, although I'm a little bit scared, is the National Geographic's Green Dex calculator. Green Dex. Yeah. So basically you can go to this website, the National Geographic Green Dex website, and use their calculator. They ask you questions like, how much imported food do you buy? How often do you fly? How many times a year do you fly? And that sort oh, of thing. Do you grow your own food? That sort no. of thing. I know. <laughs> and so, you know, they have a calculator to calculate kind of how green you are, I guess. And of course, as Americans, my understanding is that we do not score
0: the greatest. Oh, really? Check it out. Is that, is that true? <laughs> I would have never guessed. <laughs> okay. Well, what if... Our listeners live in a polluted place. What if they live in China or they live in, say, Sacramento or Los Angeles still has smog a lot? What recommendations can we offer to them about how to protect themselves from air pollution? Well, the first
1: recommendation I would have is check the AQI index for your area if one exists. Oh, air
0: quality index, AQI. Okay, That's right
1: daily or throughout the day, depending on how heavy the pollution is, just to familiarize yourself with what the air quality is like in your area because you might think that you can see particles in the air, which we know that you can eventually, but that's actually at a level where it's already very dangerous. You're so big trouble exactly if you can see it. Exactly. So best to see, you know, through an actual science (laughs) like uh, what that reading actually is as opposed to just looking so check your aqi index for sure oh that's redundant it's aqi it's an index already
0: (laughs) okay so definitely check the aqi and then what if it's bad what if you live in sacramento like you did and look and see that it's 100 and that's actually unhealthy and what do you do then probably the most
1: important thing is, and I know you're not going to like this. I know I didn't like it at first. I was very embarrassed. And I don't know how people in Sacramento would react to this to me walking around, but you should probably put on a face mask. And I don't mean like a little surgical mask. I mean, a face mask that actually filters out particulate matter.
0: Oh, you mean a Burning
1: Man face mask? (laughs) (laughs) Mm, Some of them, maybe. I prefer mine with fur and sparkles. But yeah, so the N95 or N99 particulate matter filtered masks are the only ones that are actually going to do anything for you. And they need to be well fitting. And we'll put a link in the show notes to instructions for how to make sure that your mask fits well. But basically what you do is you put it on your face, you squeeze the little metal thing that goes over your nose so that it's a good fit. And then you breathe out and make sure that there's no air kind of coming out. It needs to be sealed.
0: We should probably note very quickly that we are working towards our PhD, not MD. And so these recommendations are coming from not a place of medical knowledge, but rather we have been living in China and we have been dealing with this. And these are the best recommendations that we have found for trying to reduce the impact of the pollution on you.
1: Right. We're not doctors yet or that kind of doctor. So... (laughs) but then there are also things you can do to your home to help right you know we did this when we lived in china we got an air filter for our home
0: quite cheaply well i should say relatively cheaply you do not need to spend tons and tons of money of getting one from like dyson or another company but rather you can just buy the filters and attach them to a fan correct Yeah,
1: and there are tutorials online or there are companies that will do this for you for a pretty reasonable 200 renminbi, I believe we paid. Which
0: is, what, about $30, roughly? Yeah. Okay, that's, yeah, I think that was, I mean, that was as cheap as we could find.
1: But you can also seal, make sure that your windows and doors are sealed, there's no gaps, don't be flying open your windows, you know, to the breeze when it is really, really polluted. And also make sure that your air conditioner circulates indoor air, That sort of thing.
0: And unfortunately, as your Baidu D2 app notification told you, it cares for me so much. It does. (laughs) (laughs) Probably should try to not go outside. Yeah, this is a
1: harsh reality is that sometimes it gets so bad that maybe you shouldn't go outside. And if you do, don't be running around like crazy. Take a shower when you get home. Yes, I'm serious. These are things to consider.
0: All right, everyone. I hope we haven't scared you. Most people, I think, of our listeners, um, if you are living in, say, the U.S., you are probably really lucky and you live in a really clean, safe place and you're fine. But if you, like us, watched Under the Dome and were a little terrified, (laughs) these are just some of the things that you can do. Thanks for
1: listening.